Hey, everybody, and welcome back to The One Thing Podcast. I'm Chris Dixon. Have you ever been exposed to a brand or a service that just had incredible levels of detail, that the delivery of their service was so good, it left you asking when you're going to be back? And today, we have a special episode for you. Co-author of The One Thing book, Jay Papazan, had the special opportunity to interview Will Gadara, And Will shares some of his experience running some of the world's best restaurants. And he talks about his book, Unreasonable Hospitality. And what I love about this conversation is what Will defines as being unreasonable. It's this relentless pursuit of greatness. And in the context of hospitality, he shares, it's when companies decide that hospitality is an essential part of their DNA and their product. And the pursuit of excellence gives people purpose. And here at The One Thing, we believe purpose informs priority. If you have clarity on your purpose, you know what you should say yes to as an individual, as a business over time so that you can be productive towards the goals that you've set. And no matter what business you're in or what goals you're working on, I think there's a lot we can take away from this conversation when we think about being unreasonable in the pursuit of your products and goals. So if you like what you hear on this podcast and you wanna learn how you can bring the principles of the one thing to your life, to your business, check out theonething.com. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jay Papazan and Will Gadara. All right, Will, welcome to The One Thing Podcast. Um, I'm so excited to chat with you again. Got to know you a little bit um, in a previous call. Got to know you a lot by reading your remarkable book, Unreasonable Hospitality. We're going to talk about that a lot in your journey. Um, getting to know you and also just looking at your biography. If people want to know, who are we going to hear from today? You're the current founder, and I guess you're the CEO of your hospitality agency called Thank You, which I want to explore more in detail. You were the co-owner of literally the best restaurant in the world, 11, 11 Madison Park, and one of the offshoots from that, Nomad. Um, that's a career, a whole career you've had so far <laughs> that you're starting a new chapter, which I want to talk about. Yeah. And you also co-founded a the first ever conference for the hospitality side of the restaurant business. Instead of it being about cookware and pots and chefs, you started, what is it, the Welcome Conference, yeah. which I love in terms of building community around something you love. I also know that your husband, Christina, a father to your daughter, Frankie, and utterly obsessed with customer experience, which we've kicked around a couple of times. We believe, as obsessions go, it's a generally healthy one. I think you said <laughs> yeah. serving people instead of just annoying them by like picking things off their clothes. Yes. <laughs> what, what are we missing? What are we missing about Will before we dive in uh, to your book and your life story? Man, well, first of all, I'm just so excited to be here. I've enjoyed our conversation so far, and I've been looking forward to this one. Yeah, I think the obsession around hospitality is healthy. The obsession around excellence in service probably scratches the OCD sides of me and probably verges on unhealthy, but the balance, I think, kind of holds them each other together. Are all really successful people that make it to number one just a little bit OCD about something that matters? Like they just happen to be OCD about the thing that matters. Maybe as someone who's a little OCD, I'm hoping that's the answer you've seen. I'm projecting, but... I mean, I think you have to be. I think to become the best at anything, you have to be relentless in pursuit of the details that that takes something from being really, really, really great to being best in class. And yeah. And if you're passionate enough about that thing, it never feels like work. It just feels like this beautiful journey that slowly and almost invariably, you know, helps you achieve this mission that you're on. But mm. no, I think that that's a good summary of, of, of what I do, I'm you're catching me at an interesting point in my life. I've finished one chapter and I'm, I'm beginning another. To use David Brooks isms, I'm like beginning my second mountain right now. Um, yeah, my my first mountain, and really the only thing I've ever done in my entire life is work in restaurants. And I was never the chef. I never wanted to be the chef. I always liked to be the guy in the front holding the party. I liked being the guy that connected with people and created the conditions wherein they could more genuinely connect with one another. And I love restaurants, but I have this, to use <laughs> our buzzwords to, so far, an obsession right now 
with with broadcasting this idea that I don't care what you do for a living, anyone can make the choice to be in the hospitality industry. And I tried to do yes. that through the book. And I've been so pleased that it has broken out beyond restaurants to other industries. I, I tried to do that with the Welcome Conference, which started as something for my industry, but has become attended by many other industries. And and now I'm doing it with Thank You, which is, yeah, it's a, it's a hospitality agency and we work with big companies, not hotel and restaurant companies by design, but any other type of customer service company to help them build relationship capital. Effectively, we're, we're a think tank um, that whenever they are pursuing relationships with their various stakeholders through gifting or gathering or, or anything, we come in and bring a bit more intention and creativity to try to help them do it better, showing that. Well, A, we believe you can make more money if you put hospitality first. B, we think it makes the world a better place if companies start being as relentless, start bringing as much fervor, start being as unreasonable in pursuit of people and connection as they already are in pursuit of product. I think it's important for this conversation, like for your company that you're describing what you do today, right? Like basically consulting an agency, right? Helping people discover their inner hospitality genius. Now, define hospitality for me. How do you define hospitality? And then I'm going to, before you go too far, I want to know the difference between hospitality and unreasonable hospitality is, Hmm. since that is the title of your tone. Yes. So, okay. When, and you and I have talked a lot about interviewing, and and we'll probably end up talking about that at some point today, but... We'll have like a little meta interview during our interview about interviews. (laughs) exactly. Now, back in the day when I was first interviewing people i wasn't i wasn't yet confident in those conversations so i always went in with a script a list of pre-written questions and i would just you know check them off and i kind of had some sense of what i wanted to hear as an answer to each one and one of them was always what is the difference between service and hospitality and the best answer i ever got came from a woman that i ended up not hiring she said service is black and white hospitality is color um Hmm. For me, service, for me, the two are very, very different. And a company's understanding of that fact defines their approach and and their priorities. Service in a restaurant, that is the technical part of what we do. The service is a part of the product. Service is getting the right plate to the right person within the allotted amount of time. Hospitality mm-hmm. is the extent to which you connect meaningfully with that person as you serve them, or the extent to which you invite the people you're serving to connect with one another. I believe a restaurant with extraordinary hospitality, if you and I are are going to that restaurant, we should be closer at the end of that meal than we were when we got there. Yeah. The difference between hospitality and unreasonable hospitality, unreasonable hospitality is technicolor, um, mm. where you're not just being naturally and organically hospitable, but you're pursuing it. You're going after it. You're doing it with just as much intention and creativity as you do anything else. The difference between hospitality and unreasonable hospitality is when a company decides that hospitality is essential to their product. And I'm going to say one more thing on this. You say intention the way in our one thing community, we talk about being purposeful. Hmm, Yes. Yes. And we have a chapter in our book where we talk about going from being entrepreneurial, which is your natural ceiling of achievement. This is as good as I am at doing this thing. I'm naturally friendly. I'm going to greet you. I'm going to remember your first name and your kids' names. Being purposeful or intentional, as you say it, like you talk about the process you implemented and I've experienced this at other restaurants and it might've been inspired by 11. Can I just say EMP from now on for lettuce and uh, yeah. 11 Madison Park? It yeah. is a mouthful. Um, <laughs> where you would greet people by name. Mm-hmm. Hey, welcome, Mr. Gadara. Welcome to our restaurant. Yes. And the process you implemented so that you could confidently say someone's name that you'd never met. That to me is being purposeful and the other would be, you know, hospitality versus unreasonable, which I thought was a pretty remarkable story. 
No, for sure. And I, I think that's a really great way to frame it because when I was coming up, one of the things I'd hear a lot in my industry was that you can't teach hospitality. You can teach mm. excellence. So hire for hospitality and then train excellence. But I fundamentally disagree with that. I believe that hospitality is a muscle that you can strengthen. It is something you can teach, or at the very least, it's something that you can encourage and refine and strengthen. And unreasonable hospitality is embodied by those that decide to pursue it in that way. Um, the One of the four words to one of our books a long time ago, Gary wrote a little introduction about you know the difference between average and exceptional. And he was talking about his son, John, who's now one of my coworkers, who had pretty intense ADHD, as do both of my kids. So I, <laughs> I, I tuned in. And the idea is that people with ADHD had below average focus. And not through just pharmaceuticals, but by bringing purposeful, a model for bringing focus to their life, what they often did was they slingshotted right past whatever average looked like. Because if you're average, there's no pain. There's no reason to really be better. I'm just average at being hospitable. Yes. Nobody's going to ever say you're not good at it because you're right in this fat, comfortable middle. So like, I actually argue, I'm right in there in, in your side. Just because someone's not natural at that side of the business, if you give them a model and you give them training and give them technique, a lot of times they're going to outperform all the quote naturals all day long. Yeah. I, you know, I also think that some people aren't hospitable. Just because either okay. they've never, no, 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 aren't hospitable yet. Just because okay. they they haven't known what it's like to receive hospitality, or mm -hmm. as if not more importantly, they never know how good it feels to give hospitality. And I think like one of the most effective training mechanisms in that craft is just to give people a taste of how good it feels on either side of the equation. Maybe this is something we'll have to cut, but maybe that New York Times critic that was so grouchy, right? <laughs> it took you four hours to break the crust. Do you think he, maybe he was someone who is not naturally hospitable, but you finally broke through? That was a crazy story, by the way. Oh, I mean, you talk about God. a hard nut to crack. That was almost like a stereotype of the critic. I mean, it was such a funny review because it, I've, I've never read... I mean, you get a four-star review in the New York Times. It is something that very few people that do what I do will ever receive. It's meant to right. be one of the most joyful moments of your career. Now, I'm blessed. I've gotten a few of them. But I got that one, and you read it, and you're like, man, I feel like my wife just told me she loved me, but somehow did it in such a way where she said I was a real jerk along the way. <laughs> <laughs> Despite all of these things, I love you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, no, but what I was saying before, and this is something I've just been thinking about the last few days, um, in terms of how you define unreasonable hospitality within the framework of a company, it's the extent to which a company deems hospitality to be essential. So, right. like you think of a, in our language, well, yeah, yes. like you think of a or car company, priority. a car company, right? Tires are essential. You can't mm -hmm. sell a car without tires, right? And so they understand they need to make an investment in the tires. Otherwise, it's not a car without the tires. A company that embodies unreasonable hospitality recognizes that how they make people feel is as essential as the tires themselves. And they're willing to put just as much intention, purpose, pursuit behind it. Whenever someone says something as an absolute, my brain immediately searches for edge cases, right? Because I was probably that student that drove their teachers a little bit crazy in class. So the statement that everybody has the ability to be in the hospitality service immediately rings, and it's infallible to me, for anybody that's in a service business, right? Any, like, whether you're a massage therapist or a realtor or a restaurateur, right? maybe even in retail, right? All of those, like fundamentally, you're in the service business. Now, product business. Is there an increased challenge if you're a product business to be in the hospitality business? Give me an example. Hey, I'm Apple. I make computers. <clears throat> how do I bring... Like, before they had their retail stores, how would I bring hospitality to a product business? I'm Intel. I make chips. So, okay, let, uh, Apple, before they had stores, 
I think is an easier one for me to defend, right? Because you're still buying a product and this is still an important thing and people still have issues with those products and and yeah. the extent to which I Somebody can engage. Somebody is buying it. Someone's buying Somebody it. Somebody is buying it, right? That, that's where my brain went. I yes. was like, you know what? It might have been some wholesale account and they're talking to a line of computer stores, but there's still a customer at the end of the day that you can choose to build an amazing relationship with and wow them with. But and, I, and but, I just think people forget it. Yeah, and I'll take it. I'll take it further in two different ways. One, some of the companies I've been spending the most time with over the last six months are B two B businesses, because mm-hmm. that's actually where people have been treated like commodities for so long that it's actually an unfair competitive advantage if in the B2B space you start bringing hospitality to the table. Now, let's just create a a mythical company. Here's a company that somehow makes money without having any customers. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But they they still have people on their team. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most impactful parts about unreasonable hospitality is the impact it has for the people that work with you. Yes. Um, I believe the moment you focus your energy on impacting people, it brings a sense of purpose to the work that doesn't exist in its absence. And in this day and age with almost every industry having a hard time with recruiting or retention with so many people paying people more or giving people more balance, they're just treating the symptoms, not the underlying illness, which is that people don't feel fulfilled in their work because they don't feel a sense of purpose in it. Hospitality means that you are positively impacting people, which is the greatest purpose there is. And Mm -hmm. so I think it applies to every company. In fact, me and a buddy of mine, we had the same conversation the other day and we got to garbage men. And I was trying to figure out whether garbage men could um, and even in the way they engage with one another, and also in New York City, sometimes feels like almost purposefully the garbage men will just not move oh, out of the I, way I so that everyone stays behind yeah. them. <laughs> but like, I, I, I'm sure there's exceptions. I have a hard time thinking of them. Well, think of I think if you can think of all the reasons people would complain about you or your industry, every complaint is an opportunity for you to flip it. Now, I I'm in Austin, Texas. And sometimes on recycling day, I noticed that some of the recycling didn't make it all the way in the vehicle. And there's a can rolling down the street. And it's usually from someone uphill from my house, but I just kind of fastidious, I'll go and pick them up, right? And um, that's the sort of thing. I'm not saying that we have bad garbage men here. If you're listening, I love our garbage men. I don't want you to stop collecting my trash. But like, I just think that's the immediate thing I thought of. Like, there's an, always an opportunity to do what you do better or in such a way that shows thoughtfulness. Because I'm going to go back to your definition of hospitality. I started because I walked in. Everybody, again, it's called Unreasonable Hospitality. It's a fantastic read. And as I listened to the examples that you gave, the theme was always around connection, human connection, building relationship, and thoughtfulness. Like, at one point, you contrast luxury with hospitality or unreasonable hospitality. And luxury was about the expense of the magnitude of whatever it is you bought. And the hospitality was about the thoughtfulness of what you did. Yes. And people see the difference. Absolutely. There's a, there's a quote from a guy named Bobby Stuckey, who's a restaurateur in Boulder, Colorado. Um, his distinction between service and hospitality is that you can't fake hospitality. You can't pretend mm. to be hospitable. Like people will know if you don't mean it. Um, and I, like, listen, for me, hospitality is about making people feel seen. It means giving them a sense of belonging. And I think that's the thing we crave more than anything. And if you can be the person that brings that, I think it's yeah. a pretty powerful thing. Community matters. We're, we're, we're wired for that sense of belonging and community. Um, we gravitate to our tribes and in positive and negative ways. But it's true. It's true. It's hardwired into us. So it seems like the ultimate business move. Um, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the book and then we're going to wax philosophical about I have a couple of topics I want to make sure we hit. But for those of you who haven't like, checked it out, like when I put down this book, a lot of times what I ask is, where would I shelve this book? Like I've got shelves and I, I kind of put books 
that are thematically together. That's just the way my brain works. Some people, like you can tell from behind me, it's certainly not organized by the color of their spines. That is not <laughs> the way I think about books. But like one of the first associations I had was with the book by Michael Lewis called Moneyball. Have you read that book? I have I have read that, poly, that book, yeah. Because I, I opened it up and I thought, this is going to be a business book about hospitality, right? And I've read books about the Four Seasons and all of the other things. And it immediately started breaking that profile for me. And when I picked up Moneyball, I thought it was going to be a book about baseball. And yes, this is a book about hospitality and restaurants. And yes, Moneyball was a book about baseball. But they actually, to me, were leadership books. Hmm. Um, and like with Moneyball, what he what you walk away from is this sense that with any game, like there is the status quo. And if you can see through it, you see opportunities that others are missing. Yes. Because of all the bias, right? And you, that lives in this book, this idea of the classic European restaurant. And that's just the way we do it. And you have that great scene, like you're asking the captain or whatever, why? Why? (laughs) He doesn't know why. (laughs) And so... That was Moneyball for me. Like, look for that that special, and it was about statistics, right? That was the edge. Yes. And everybody went crazy. And yours was like, everybody else is competing in their kitchen. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to compete from the moment someone walks in my door in every aspect of the experience. So that was where it, it kind of caught up. And I mean, dude, it's not chapter 17 and 18 is where you really go deep and give like 30 examples of hospitality. I mean, they're peppered in. <laughs> Well, you know, it's so funny because when I was going through the book with the editors, they called that out too. They're like, it's taking me a long time to get to the hospitality stuff. But (laughs) um, I set out to write a book that shared every lesson I've learned about service and leadership through the lens of hospitality. And I don't think you can write a book about hospitality that stands a chance of being impactful without leaning heavily on leadership. Because as my mentor, Danny Meyer, would always say, hospitality is a team sport. It doesn't matter how hospitable I am. It doesn't matter the extent to which I'm good at connecting with other people. At a certain point in my company's life, we were serving thousands of people a night across cities in America and London. And I'm not serving any of those people. Maybe a handful of people in whatever restaurant I decide to visit that night, but I need to lead a team to do what I would do even when I'm not there. I need to inspire a team to care as much about these ideas as I do. And that begins and ends with leadership and leadership. When you are focusing your company on excellence, I don't think it's that hard. Right? It's easy to foster a culture of excellence. You just need to set guidelines and you need to push your team and you need to hold them to standards and deadlines. And But when you are leading a team to pursue not only excellence, but also hospitality, it's a very different idea because you need to lead them in a way where they're going to do what's expected of them and tow the company line, but also have the capacity to be their most fully realized selves at the table. And that's a different type of leadership that I felt the need to explain before. That's almost the foundation. So let's get the foundation built, and then we can have fun kind of building the building. That's it. You went right where I hoped you would go. And I think that's a service. Like I know there's a lot of people in the service industry that listen to this podcast. We know. And they, they, they write us our reviews. I hope if you're listening, you'll give us a review and share this podcast. It's, a, it's, it's just going to get better from here because I've already talked to Will. <laughs> I, I thought like if people picked it up and it was the usual business book and here's 15 techniques or models for being more hospitable, with the gift you gave me, I was like, why did he wait till 17? Uh, you were also telling a story. But what was underneath that is the foundation for hospitality has to be in place or it or it will be faked and it will be, the customer will see through it. Yeah. Right. And like you had to tell the story, like in the beginning, the kitchen and the service staff out front, what do you call the front house? Is it service and kitchen? I mean, Is that a kitchen and dining room? Kitchen and dining. Yeah. They weren't one team, they were two separate teams that sometimes could have gone to war. Yeah. So you had to make them a one cohesive team, you had to build a culture. 
you had to find out whether they were actually committed to the excellence. Like y'all were going for it. Yes. You were going for it. And that takes a different level of commitment um, than other things. So you had all of these, and I'm going to butcher it. We were just talking about the leadership, but there is a foundation that you have to lay in order to have the the result that you're wanting, right? Yeah, no, I I, I feel that so strongly. It, some some people they reach out to me and they're like, "Hey, can you come in and work with my team for a week and help us be hospitable?" And I'm like, "Well, no, <laughs> like that's not how it works. Like culture, you can't just like get a culture in a week, right? That yeah. takes time to seed and develop and reinforce." And then once you have that intact, the things that you have the capacity to do are astronomical. Um, but to your point, in restaurants, and by the way, I believe this is the case in most businesses, whether it's in the media industry, you know, whether it's editorial and um, you know, the publishing side of it, or whether it's the film industry with director and producer, whether it's in my industry with the kitchen and the dining room, too often um, there are two sides to the business that are consistently and uh, in battle with one another and don't have the awareness to understand that the tension between them is actually a beautiful thing that should be embraced and worked right. through and navigated in a way that actually makes everyone better. Um, they don't have the capacity to understand that it's okay to choose conflicting goals and to pursue two things simultaneously without relegating one to be more important than the other. And, that takes leadership and it takes inspiration to get people on board with. Yep. It happens in every business. Like the classic is like engineering complains about marketing, selling stuff that they haven't engineered and marketing complains about engineering, not building things they can market. Yes. Whereas really you should just make them all eat lunch together every day. Yes. Right. Until, <laughs> until like they started to understand the tension between the two. And it's sometimes when you're outside the box, you can see the label better. And you're like, hey, you know what? We could do this. Now we can come up together with solutions that work for both of us that none of us would have thought out alone. By the way, I love that you said eat lunch together every day because two things that brings to mind. Um, One, when I first got to the restaurant, I made all the managers start sitting with the entire team during family meal every single day because I just think that what happens around a table when people are eating together is powerful. It's a powerful yeah. thing. And one of the things that I've talked about a lot recently is that if we can take the lessons learned at round tables in restaurants and apply them to rectangular tables in boardrooms, the extent yeah. to which cultures in companies can be transformed is, is nothing short of extraordinary. Love that. I love that. No, that's so true. I mean, so so often the rules that apply in one space in our life, we think that they belong in that space. But all we had to do is break down a wall and you'd realize that, no, this is just a greater truth. And I should be applying it all the rooms in my life. Yeah. Um, you made me think of Sam Walton. I think it was In Search of Excellence, maybe that old, old book, whatever. Yeah. But management by walking around. Yeah. Right? If you are only hanging out in the boardroom, I mean, Sam Walton would just drop into stores and work a register, Yeah, right? He'd go like to the front lines and you talk about that too. It's not just experiencing walking in your employees' shoes and hanging out with them and getting to know and getting their trust and all of those things. You're also getting closer to the customer because they're where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, And it's really easy to get lost in the balance sheet and the P&L and you can get divorced from reality really quickly if you don't do what you instructed your manager to do. Like, no, let's go mingle. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the moment you actually take a role at the front line, I think th- for even just a night, I think three really powerful things happen. One, you re-engage with the perspective of the people you're leading, which mm-hmm. I say in the book perspective has an expiration date and if you don't figure out how to tap back into it you're not going to be a very empathetic leader that's one two that's you, a bumper sticker right there yeah. perception has an expiration date yeah. that's a writer downer if you're driving don't write it down just <laughs> hit a little part right, there you go uh two just to get closer to the guest because no matter i say in, in hospitality if you're in the business of making people happy 
the moment you stop caring what people think about your product is the moment you become irrelevant. Now, that's not yeah. to mean that you should change every time someone doesn't like something about what you do because then you won't have a point of view, but you should most certainly be open to hearing every time someone has something to say. And when you're too far removed from the customer, you're, it's like a game of telephone. You never hear it directly. And three, so many of the systems and practices that we put into place work one way in our head and work a very different way in reality. And until you actually are the person in there on the wheel shifting the gears, you can't fully refine a system until the point where it's as perfect as it can possibly be. I'm just nodding my head over here. I agree with everything you just said. And I've and I'm laughing because I've learned the hard way about most of those. Yeah. Because I don't know if it's overconfidence or naivete. I think a lot of us walk in thinking the opposite of some of those truths, right? Mm-hmm. I've designed the plan, now execute the plan. And they don't understand why the it must be you, not the plan that's the problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, we used to change our menu four times a year with the season. And when I say change the menu, it's that that's a very dramatic thing. It means all new plates, new service pieces, all new dishes. It's like a whole new experience. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. And your waiters or servers, they had to memorize like a a small novel in terms of what they needed to understand around the ingredients and where they were sourced. So it's beyond just the plates and the food. It's also the knowledge that you were expected to show up with about that food, right? It's an amazing amount of knowledge that needed to be remembered. But the day we launched the menu, which is a very stressful day. I would always sit down in the restaurant and eat. And a lot of people would always say like, what are you doing? You should be working right now. Like this is a bit, but I actually think in that moment, the best place I can be is on the receiving end because no matter how intensely we tried to make sure every decision we made was right, it never actually landed the way we thought it would. The meal was either always too long or too short, too much food, not enough food. Some things felt contrived. Some things weren't, you know, exaggerated mm-hmm. enough. And the menu would always change dramatically day two. The number of times I go to some customer service business and it is very clear to me that the person or people that run that business never actually are on the receiving end of whatever that yeah. business is selling. Like airplanes are a great example. Like it is very clear to me that a lot of the people making decisions at airlines that don't ever fly with those airlines or do it in a way that they're not receiving what everyone else is receiving because without spending more money or without changing that much, so many things could be nuanced just a little bit to feel so much better for the people on the receiving end. And Oh yeah. Will you please work with the airline industry, please? I desperately want, <laughs> I, I desperately want we to. We really need it. Oh, I wow. really do. Uh, all right. You just like, you've triggered so many things there. Let me go back. I'm, One of the things that you talked about is critics don't schedule a reservation with you when they're coming in to review your restaurant. And so I noticed a pattern. You always said like a restaurant, a two-star restaurant can't become a three-star restaurant the day the critic or the hour the critic's in the restaurant. Yes. You have to be that way all the time. And one of my favorite parts, I get chill bumps thinking about it, is when you knew it might happen and there was this really long period of time, like six months where you weren't sure when a critic, like every day y'all designated New York times critic table and y'all just dress rehearsed 
every single day. <laughs> that to me, that that to me is the vision of excellence, right? Yes. Is let let's whether it happens or not, we're going to show up and act like today's the day. This is the Super Bowl every single game of the season. Yeah. How do you sustain that though? I, I said what I asked, like. How do people sustain that level of energy in Norman? I mean, I actually think that that is the very thing that brings the energy. Like, I think there is nothing more draining than feeling like you're just going in and doing the same thing all over again, and it's humdrum. And like, I think the way to invigorate a team is to give them something to shoot for, and shooting for something could be the four-star review, but it could be just to get better and better and better. And and by the way, even the days that the critic didn't come, which were most of them, obviously, we knew when a critic goes to your restaurant, the moment they leave, you know whether you did a great job or not. You don't need to wait for the review to come out. Like, you know whether you nailed it. And so every night, we could look at each other at the end of the night and be like, we didn't get it. We did not nail it tonight. But there are plenty of nights that we did. When you think about what that does for energy and morale, like, guys, we've now nailed it the last five weeks in a row. Once you get five, six months in, right? And now you're so dialed in. And I mean, a team doesn't need to be playing professional games to be on a winning streak. You can be on a winning streak in practice. Um, because honestly, isn't that the case with, with most of the greats out there? You're racing against your own time more than you are anything else. Oh, absolutely. The, the greats are always competing with themselves. Yeah. Or the, the ideal version of themselves, right? I believe, um, the, I, I believe that like one of the best things you can do in any organization is gamify as much of it as possible. Because people would always say, how do you challenge your team to get better and better and better with each passing year? And I would say, I'd say I didn't. I just made the work feel enough like a game, one we all really enjoyed playing. And anyone who's ever played a game that they love, the more you play, the better you get. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm not quizzing you on our book. That was not your homework assignment. My homework assignment was to know your book so we could have a meaningful, <laughs> deep conversation, hopefully a, a different conversation. <laughs> At the end of our book, we talked about happiness. Yes. And Gary and I went on a deep dive. We read a bunch of books because we're like, what's the end product we're looking for? And our, we originally thought that someone who lived their purpose, right, and reached their potential, like happiness. But everything we read, all the psychology is like, that's that's... Fundamentally, happiness is just a choice. And for some people, it's hard if their their chemistry is not perfectly aligned. But what people who are, I want to say, experience the highest levels of happiness, but it's a different word, is fulfillment. When people are making progress towards a goal, they actually are happier and more pleased than when they actually win it. Yeah. And so the whole idea that you're talking about is this incredibly high peak you're trying to climb together. There is no control ultimately over where you get to the top, right? Because you don't, you can only do everything you can, but you don't have control of the outcome. Yes. But this game of can we just be a little bit better? Yeah. That's actually that journey of playing that game that you just described, gamifying it, is where people feel the highest levels of fulfillment in their lives. And that was a major learning in my lifetime. And I was like, okay, great. I just want to set goals that maybe I can never achieve. Well, yeah. And measure my progress towards them. I'll underscore that with the following. One of the most depressing seasons of my life was the season immediately following us becoming number one. Yeah. What now? Yeah. What do I do now? Yeah. I mean, it's it's like, because, I mean, it, it like, what is it? It's the journey, not the destination, which always just sounds like such BS when you're on the journey. But until you actually get there and you're like, oh. And listen, don't misunderstand me. I'm very happy we reached the destination. Oh yeah, <laughs> but but of course, but it's hard to like fully articulate. And I mean, and I'll tell you, we I got renovated the entire restaurant six months later because the only thing I knew how to do at that point was to start all over again. That's cool. And I, you're not the only person, right? Like sometimes people spend their whole life waiting to get drafted by the pros or win a Super Bowl or whatever. Like whatever that achievement was, they felt like might not have been attainable. And there is a lot of research that shows that 
because they attained it, that that now creates like, well, man, my purpose just got stolen from me. Yeah. What am I going to do to motivate my sense of excellence going forward? And I think, um, and I think that defines. What, no, say it. Go go. No, 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 go. I want to hear this. Well, at one point, you know, Gary had a chip on his shoulder and he t- he's told the story many times. Um, he left his former company and when he quit, he just said, everybody here thinks they're here to serve you. And I think we, as he was a fellow leader, are here to serve them. So I just don't think we can work together anymore. He, he left the number one company in our area at age 27 and went to go start a competitor. Normally, he would have been ground into the ground, you know, like within a year and bankrupt. That's what most people did. But he's Gary Keller. Well, in four years, he became number one in market share, agent count, volume, and production. All Every award you could win in Austin in four years from zero. And I asked him, and this is not in any book, I just said, Gary, a chip on your shoulder is a really cool thing. But like, what did you do after? And he went through like an existential crisis. And he ended up making it a spiritual journey. And he just said, I think at the end of the day, my calling is to become the best version, like to be the best I can be. There is no, like you never get to cross the finish line. But he, for him, it was like, that was how he turned it around. And he found a positive beacon to pull him forward versus that negative something. Not saying that being number one in the world is negative, but it had a finish line. He beat down his demon, right? He he knocked out the boss in the video game. Now what? Well, Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game, I think is so good for this kind of thing. Like there's no winning business, right? And and that yeah. is the reality ultimately. Uh, I love that story. What I was gonna say is, I mean, that that's kind of ultimately what got me to where I am was that I do need a new journey and challenge that does not have such a clearly defined end date because I don't want to do that again. And, and this idea of just trying to take the lessons from my industry and apply them to others is one that will, I mean, that'll never be done. Right. And, and so it's, it's a very different journey, but, and one that honestly, I feel like has the capacity to impact a lot more people. I always talk about how restaurants are important that there's nobility in serving other people because we can help people celebrate the most important moments of their lives, or we can give them the grace if only for a few hours to forget about their most difficult ones. Or if I'm getting super soapboxy, I believe that we can make the world a nicer place just by being really nice to everyone that walks through our doors. And at the peak of my company, maybe that would have been 600,000 people a year. Um, if instead, Which is not nothing, by the way. It's not nothing. That's not, not nothing. But if you can <laughs> inspire the people who are serving people, um, just to think maybe perhaps just a little bit differently, I think the impact becomes so much greater. It's almost incalculable. Well, I think with your book, I'm going to keep coming back to that. Uh, and this is one of the reasons I write books. If through this, right, this this gets to live as long as people will put it in print or have an electronic copy. <laughs> if you can teach people, right, you are actually coaching and co- you have an agency where you work with companies to become the best version of themselves. But if you can teach people ultimately to teach that as well, yeah, then it becomes this whole exponential thing where now you've taught a whole other generation of managers in these companies what you've learned and how to teach it to others, yes. your impact it becomes pretty hard to measure there. So you go for it because we all want to have a better experience at the DMV. That's your first assignment. Then the airlines, right? We'll just go through. We'll make you a little homework list. And then everybody <laughs> listening to the podcast is going to get referrals to your business. Right? <laughs> the DMV and, and the airline industry are my white whales. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I want to honor everybody's time. We've been having a lot of fun. I want to I want to hit some rapid fire questions to okay. you real quick. Um, without spoiling the book, I feel like you had a pretty extraordinary relationship with both your mom and your dad. What was the biggest lesson? You, your dad was uh, in the restaurant business too. What was the number one lesson you think that your dad taught you that you carried through this journey? 
My gosh, the book is chock full of lessons from my dad. So many. I know. This is the one thing podcast, though. So what was the first thing that jumped to your mind? It might be the right one. Adversity is a terrible thing to waste. Okay. Um, You can't control what life throws at you, but you can decide how you're going to respond to it, how you're going to let it push you to grow, what you're going to learn from it. What about your mom? Your mom faced a horrible health crisis, right? She, but amazing story there too. Yeah. My mom was quadriplegic by the time I was 11 and lived until just a day after I graduated college. Um, she taught me that you don't need to be able to move or even talk to make someone feel so genuinely loved that hospitality Yes, it can be pursued with intention and strength and and creativity, all the things I always say, but that it's an energy that can come from within you if you believe strongly enough in in emitting it. I love that. If that came off the page, I'd guessed what your answer is. I thought maybe your dad might be intention and your mom, like the amazing attitude she displayed throughout it all, like you... Uh, it, it just came off the page. Yeah. Like I was like, man, I want to spend time with both of these individuals. Hmm. If I could get in a time machine, they seemed like you got the gift of a couple of remarkable parents. Yeah, so, for sure. Awesome. Um, corporate versus restaurant smarts. I love that one of the lessons, right? Yes. And this is, I think, true of a lot of entrepreneurs. If, you, if anybody's read the E-Myth, we've got the technicians and we got the managers. Like, can you give a quick backstory on the difference between corporate smarts and restaurant smarts? But that was a section that I ended up scribbling in a little bit. Oh, I love that. Um, that's funny. That was a chapter that I, it took me a while to to feel good enough about it to include it in the book. And so that makes me happy. Um, that was defining two different companies I worked with because of my dad's intention, him pushing me to experience both companies Corporate smart restaurant dumb versus restaurant smart corporate dumb. Really, it's where the highest paid people in the company are. Are they in the corporate office or are they or are they in the front line? Um, because that dictates often how the company makes decisions, and it represents the distinction between control and empowerment. How yeah. you know they're the. The U.S. Naval Captain David Marquez said that in most organizations, the people at the top have all the authority and none of the information, where the people on the front line have all the information and none of the authority. My dad wanted me to work for both of these types of companies in order for me to have the perspective of each so that I could try to build one that shared the greatest elements of both. That's what I love about your narrative is that you were constantly trying to take two things that would naturally be conflicting and find an intersection where they could cohabitate in a way that was positive. Yes. And um, there's an old management book. I can't remember uh, what it's called but now, but I remember it had like this axiom, you know, back in the day when people had igloos, if they wanted light, they had to cut a hole in the wall and their house got colder. <laughs> and if they wanted to be warm, they had to close it up and then their house was smoky. And people didn't know like how to, to fix it. It was dark and smoky. Yes. And he's like, but the solution actually was the innovation of Windows. Yes. And he goes, like, a lot of times people look and he goes, Well, we have to have a hole or not a hole. And there's usually an innovation that brings the best of both, but you have to be really hunting for it. And that was actually the lesson I took from it. I, I come from the field of writers, and a lot of them, I'm a craftsman. Don't talk to me about contracts. I'm like, yeah, that's why you got stuck with a horrible publisher in a three-book contract. Don't complain to me. And at the same time, you know, if you do that, they'll say you're a sellout. Yeah. And I'm 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 sure it's the same in the culinary world where you've got these like, oh, these two worlds don't mix. But the most successful people, they either have figured out how to combine those ingredients so that they can be the fullest version of a business person themselves, or they've surrounded themselves. Because they just acknowledge that it's important, right? right? Corporate smarts allow you to scale. The restaurant smarts allow you to innovate. Yes. If you really want to be great, you got to do both. Well, and I also just don't understand how people are so comfortable being really good at one thing and really bad at another thing. 
I just don't get it. Like you either like care about stuff. And by the way, I, to your point, I don't expect everyone to be good at everything, but that's the point of having a team is to trust yeah. that other people fill your, your void such that collectively you're stronger. And the, the, the artisan thing always drives me crazy because in the restaurant business, there's so many people out there that they're so focused on the craft that they don't make any money. And at that point, just invite people over to dinner at your house. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, you cannot be a great restaurant if you're not making money. Because so many of the little things that make the experience better cost money. And if you're not making enough to reinvest enough, you're never going to be the best that's out there. All right. I thought I was going to go to people, but now I want to go to, again, we're trying to move fast. Tell me about the 95.5. Because this is about managing your budget while still bringing the kind of the wow factor. Yeah. So the rule of 95.5 means manage your money like a crazy person 95% of the time such that you can spend it foolishly the other 5%. And I put foolishly in air quotes because I actually don't think it's foolish at all. I think that's actually some of the smartest money you'll ever spend. Um, many businesses, in fact, there's a famous economy that uh, economist that says in most companies, what gets measured gets managed. Another way right. of saying that most companies won't spend any money unless there's a clearly defined return on that investment. The problem with that is, and I think it's it's completely wrong, is... It's impossible to measure human emotion. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. In fact, I believe it matters so much and there's such a return that it's incalculable. Um, right. The 5%. If anyone reads the book, that's the dream weaver I talk about, all the crazy gestures we did for people. Um, that 5% is what made us number one in the world. And every dollar yeah. we spent on that 5% at its height, you had four Dreamweavers. Yeah. They were hanging out like near the hostess area. And basically, they had, I don't know, like some crazy horde of craft supplies. And anytime, like, I'm just like to give people an idea, they, if they haven't read the book yet, they're all going to, right? <laughs> Is this idea that the waiter might hear that, oh, I didn't get a teddy bear for my son's birthday present. I'll have to get up earlier tomorrow. And like someone back there would literally make them a teddy bear out of like yeah. linens on the back and present it to like, they would do these crazy things. Or they would buy sleds for a family that had never seen snow. So they'd go sledding after their meal, or they would turn our private dining room into a beach with sand from Home Depot for a couple that was there to console themselves after their beach vacation flight was canceled. I mean, Thousands of these. You've got two whole chapters of example after yeah. example after example. Uh, that you didn't, I didn't connect it to the 5%. You just did for me. Yeah. But that was great. Like, yeah, that was the tiny fraction of your staffing cost. And like you're, the hot dog, like it wasn't always about money either. No, 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 it was no, no, about no. the thoughtfulness. It wasn't right? how much you were spending. It was, how, it was how it made people feel. It wasn't about giving more. It was about being more thoughtful. And Maya Angelou's quote, people will forget what you say, they'll forget what you do, they'll never forget how you made them feel. The 5% is what goes into making people feel a certain way. Because here's the thing, like no one remembers like the plate of foie gras or tuna tartare 20 years later, but they'll never forget the sledding, they'll never forget the teddy bear, they'll never forget all those things because those are one-size-fits-one gestures that are specific to the person receiving them. They show a sense of humor. They showed that we cared enough about the person to listen and then to do with something, do something with what we heard. And that's all 5% spending. When there is not a return on the investment, if it's investing in people, there is a return. It's just impossible to measure, but you need to trust that you need to put your money where your gut is. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you also role modeled, you were out there. You were, you were dropping off trays. You were busting tables. You were in the mix. So you were also seeing these opportunities and helping kind of build this culture. But once it took off, like, I mean, did you have people suggest things that were just, you had to actually say no to? Did you say no? Like, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that. I didn't approve it. I, I never made them go through me to get the ideas approved. <laughs> no, because, awesome. because here's the deal. Two things would have happened. Had I done that, one, I would have been a bottleneck. We would have done a fraction of what we did. And two, part of the whole idea was that in, in this idea, we took people 
that had always just been serving plates of food that someone else had created, and we were giving them the ability to imbue the experience with their own creativity. We empowered yeah. them. And I've yet to meet a single individual in my life who won't give more of themselves to make something great than once they have a genuine hand in defining what that thing is. We turn salespeople into product designers. Love it. Uh, one of our mantras that Gary tries to beat in our head is authorship is ownership. Mm, yes. You gave them authorship of the experience and then they're going to walk around like owners, right? right? Caring just as much as you that. do. I love that. Authorship, I'm writing that down. Like, I, like, we were introduced for a reason. I think that a lot of your philosophy is is alive and well around here. Um, but I love it. And the stories, you just kept getting better. All right, I've got a couple more questions and then we'll, we'll start wrapping this up. Okay. Um, one of the things... A lot of our the people listening to this are entrepreneurs. And the descriptions by the end of the book of the people that would have just been seen as employees, like they were acting like entrepreneurs. They had ownership. Yes. They were making massive decisions, consequential decisions on the fly based on training and culture. One of the cool things is the signal y'all came up with. I mentioned it earlier, the lapel. Yes. And how impactful that was. Can you share that story of the the DBC club and why it was so impactful? Yeah, so DBC, uh, my best friend from preschool, who's still my one of my best friends, he lives very close to me up in the country now, um, was worked at a psychiatric hospital. And he was one of these guys, he made it cool to care, like... One of the first things he did there was there were a bunch of blue-haired therapists that were trying to get these inner-city kids to talk about their problems. No one would ever talk about anything. And so he set up a recording studio in a utility closet in the basement and would just make music with these kids. And through the music, the kids talked about everything. And then he wanted to make it cool to care, and he believed that they were over-prescribing drugs. And he always mm-hmm. believed that just deep breathing was the best way to get through a potential meltdown. So he literally was in his parents' basement in Westchester, New York, and he found an old silkscreen press and made a bunch of t-shirts that just said DBC and big block letters, deep breathing club. And they were cool t-shirts. And if a kid overcame a potential meltdown through deep breathing alone, a certain number of times in a row, they'd get a shirt Then everyone else wanted the shirt. And over the course of some number of months, like the amount of sedatives being prescribed just went down by like an astronomical amount. Um, he made it cool to care. Um, yeah. DBC in in our organization became known as selling, and there's kind of there's a yin and a yang here. Yeah. Sometimes people start to go off the rails in the heat of service, and everyone has the heat of service. It means different things in different industries. And if you go to someone who is in the weeds, that's what we call it. And yeah, you, and, I, I, I waited tables all through college. Yeah. I know what in the weeds means, yeah. and I felt it. <laughs> um, and you say, and they're like kind of losing it a little bit. And you say, chill out or calm down. You're basically just pouring fuel on the fire. Um, right. Those words trigger people in a certain way. But yet you need to be able to communicate to people when it's time to take a breath. And so right. we just came up with an established shorthand. And we agreed as a team that you weren't allowed to take it personally if someone ever said DBC to you. It just meant, hey, DBC. just take a breath. DBC. Very unemotionally. People would just say it to someone as they were walking by and they'd be like, ah. that was our way of basically like kind of reaching out Made to it people. Okay. It wasn't a judgment on someone. Yes. It was someone that you trusted helping you out. And that's probably why I connected it. You also made it okay to ask for help. So then we made it also on the other side to ask for help because people have a similar stigma with asking for help. They believe, and this is so not the case, but so many high performers believe that if they ask for help, it's a sign of weakness when to the contrary, it means you're confident enough and it's a strength. But people have a hard time saying, I need help. And so I just destigmatized it by turning it into sign language. No matter yeah. where you were in the room, if I made eye contact with you and touched my lapel, it just meant I need help. Come here now. And no matter what you're doing, you dropped everything. You went and helped that person. And not only did it just make things more efficient because you didn't need to chase someone around the room asking for help, but it also made sure that no one ever had to ask for it. It made it much more comfortable yeah. to do. It's actually hard to, if you're really in that place of distress, 
actually saying the words can lead to a breakdown and people are afraid of, and I don't want to lose control. Yeah. And what I loved was the simplicity of, I can make eye contact and just give you this signal. Yeah. Put my hand over my heart as like, is what you're doing, even though you're say touching your lapel. And it just immediately people can spring to action. Well, and it's just like, I loved the genius of it, whether it was by accident, like 90 feet between the base pass and baseball or whatever, like everything about it worked because I know entrepreneurs and they will grind themselves into the ground without asking for help because of the stigma or maybe just how hard it is to actually have to say the words. And y'all came up with the system for making it so easy and destigmatized it. So bravo. And I hope, I hope people will get there and read that and go, how can I do that for my organization? Oh, that's cool, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, there's a lot of people unnecessarily in pain because their teammates want to help them. Yeah. But they, they haven't found the courage to articulate it or a way to do it in a way that feels safe. To well, them. and I love how you, what yep. you just said. I never thought about it that way. Like, yeah, sometimes when you are really struggling, saying it out loud is enough to bring you the tears. Um, yeah. And you and don't so, want to lose control in front of your customers or your coworkers. Yeah. So given that as an alternative, you'd rather just not ask for help. Yeah. So sometimes like you can try to change like foundational human behavior, or you can adapt to it and just create systems that embrace things that make us uniquely human. And maybe they make us less efficient and impactful at times, but they don't make us any less human. And sometimes that's the most beautiful part about who we are. Oh, all right. I could talk to you for six hours, (laughs) but I actually love the warmth and the connection empathy. Cause like the whole thing here is about connection and relationships, and we just went right back to the the meaty heart of a terrific book. Remember, Unreasonable Hospitality. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I would definitely recommend it. It's going on one of my special shelves. I've already told you by Moneyball because <laughs> I think it was a sneaky, sly book, right? I thought it was going to be one thing, and it was something else, and it was actually quite pleasurable, the surprise that I got. Um, a couple of quick questions, and then we're going to get out of here and okay. let people get back to walking their dog or running around the park or whatever they do when they listen to their favorite podcast. Um, Do you, we think a lot in habits, right? When you know what your one thing is, it would be really awesome if you could make it a habit. Can you step outside a little bit or someone worked with you and said, like, that's something that you just do, which means you've got a habit of doing it that you think made you who you are? Oh, I have had honestly one of my habits for a really long time has been journaling at the end of the night um, oh, and you write about that yeah which by the way goes back to perspective having an expiration date my dad made me do that from an early age i hated doing it when my dad asked me to do it when i was young because it just felt like homework and, and was, he didn't give you a glass of wine back yeah then. exactly it was different before you're drinking a glass of wine while you're doing it but <laughs> like I, I would always journal to to because here's the thing in most industries you get promoted and promoted and promoted and promoted and for the first couple months after a promotion one of your superpowers is you see the world through the eyes of the people you're now leaving that makes you a good leader but then eventually you lose that perspective and you move on and through journaling you can capture perspective but also through journaling I would reflect in the night and realized and realized that like, my gosh, I did not talk to Joe in the way that I wanted to talk to him. And it was only through journaling that I'd remember that. And then, I mean, a few times a week, every week, I'd walk in in the morning, find someone from the night before and apologize. Not for the message I was sending but for the way in which I communicated it. Um, that came from journaling. What we were doing and well. a lot of them we, were like, what are you talking about, right? Yeah. They didn't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> but even if they didn't remember it, I believe so much in creating a culture of feedback, both praise and criticism. And I think pr- criticism is getting lost these days because people don't want to hurt people's feelings, but there's nothing more powerful than someone being willing to step outside of their comfort zone for long enough to invest in someone else. And that happens through criticism. But if you're willing to criticize yourself and basically apologizing for doing something wrong is criticizing yourself, people will always be that much more willing to receive criticism from you. And mm-hmm. so I think the impacts are, are, are pretty, pretty big. 
You're full of a lot of nuggets, Will. Oh, that was a good <laughs> one, too. All right. Um, this is now selfish, completely selfish. I'm on the clock. I, I get to come back. But you say throughout, like, you're more of a burger guy than you were, like, the fine dining guy at heart. Right? Yes. You played in a punk band, a drummer, all of that. One of my most favorite kind of cheat meals, like, if I give a one-thing speech, and I, you know, like, I'm an introvert, so getting out in front of a lot of people, like, my reward is I'll go try to find the best cheeseburger wherever I am. Yes, me too. So I've got a list I keep, like a little note, like of my, you know, my my Hall of Fame top five or so out there. I'm just wondering, like, what's what's your one of your favorite burgers? What comes to mind? Like, where would you go to grab that burger? I mean, You're my, in New York. My so. last meal would be a double double animal style at In and Out Burger, like that. <laughs> <laughs> that for me is just like maybe my with by the way with a very expensive bottle of Barolo Conterno like okay. a great bottle of red wine and a, and a double double animal style um I love a ton of cheeseburgers but that one there's just something about it man and I know some people don't love that one but it's just my perfect burger I love that no I love that answer and it's terrific and I just I also like that it was from a chain yeah. Like you kept talking about, like when I leave here, I'm going to go work at Shake Shack, yeah. which was part of the restaurant. Yeah. But I just love the contrast. And Shake Shack makes a pretty decent burger. Yeah. Um, but in and out, we got one in Austin finally. And it's, you know, I can't throw a frisbee and hit it, but it's not far. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that, Jim. I'll add it to my list of must, must, must reintroduce to make sure. Yeah. And last thing, if people want to connect with you, where should they go? Do they find you on Instagram? Should they go to. Um, your company and check out the thank you company. Where where can they find you if after this they really want to connect with you or just learn more about you? I appreciate that, man. Yeah, I'm on Instagram at W Gadera, Sam on LinkedIn, and then our company is thankyou.nyc. Love it. Yeah. Hey, but this was this is awesome. I really enjoyed the conversation. I could do it for six more hours too. So we'll have to we'll, keep it we'll going. We'll have to come back and do it. Yeah, I love it. Thanks for listening to the One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There you'll find information on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing.com. We'll see you next week.